Good morning, everyone. As we get started today, I got an email from uh, Barbara Granada. Her daughter, Zenny, was just deployed to Afghanistan this week. And she would like us to remember her daughter in prayer, deployed there with the U.S. forces to Afghanistan. So if we will remember her in prayer. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer today. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are so gracious and loving and patient with us. We pray that you will pour your spirit upon us, that our minds can be enlightened to discern and see the truths you have for us, that we can see you more clearly. We pray for this class, that the members of this class can come to know you and be shining lights in their community, revealing truth about you to set minds free. We want to remember Zenny Granada today, that you will be with her. Send your angels to watch over her, protect her, and use her, uh, whatever might come, whatever circumstances she may face, may she be able to witness for you in this, uh, this land overseas, we pray. We ask that you would uh, guide uh, the members of our class who are grieving, be with the families that are struggling with loss, to bring comfort to them, we pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number 13 in our quarter of the prophetic gift, and the title this week is Confidence in the Prophetic Gift. Somebody read for us the memory text, which is Second Chronicles 20.20. 20. Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah, and you inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you shall be established. Believe his prophets, and you shall prosper. What does it mean to believe God's prophets? To believe what they say. I want you to consider these two scenarios. Scenario one, a calculus teacher puts a problem on the board. You have no idea how to do calculus, but the teacher is a longtime friend who you know and trust. And so after the problem is put on the board, the calculus teacher, your friend, tells you the answer, and you believe him. Scenario one. Scenario two, you have learned from your friend how to do calculus, And as your friend tells you the answer, you understand the calculations yourself and how the answer was arrived at and agree that the answer is correct, and so you believe him. Are these two types of belief the same? No. Which belief does God want from us? Are we confident in that? I told a young lady this very scenario this past week uh, in Dallas. I was in Dallas on Thursday. And told her this scenario, and she's a Christian, and she chose number one. Did anybody go to first church? Yep. What do you think the first church sermon would have picked? One. Number one. In fact, it was stated explicitly in the sermon that natural man wants explanations, but God wants us to believe without those, basically. And in fact, it was stated explicitly that even if God explained it to us, he couldn't make us understand. Do you believe that God could not make us understand? That's what was stated twice in the sermon this morning. Hmm. Yes? Let me ask you this. Could scenario number one that you presented be a, an appropriate starting place, appropriate place to begin, in, in that... When the trusted calculus teacher gave you the correct answer, gave you the answer, and it was proved to be correct, would that build trust and encourage you to perhaps learn the steps? See, I like that balance, and I think that's exactly right. The problem that I have is when people suggest the stopping point with God is non-understanding. 
I think it's okay as a starting point that we come to see it and, and trust him and recognize how trustworthy he is. But how, how even is that trust in him established? Isn't it on some basis of understanding his trustworthiness, understanding his love, understanding his self-sacrifice, understanding his care for us? I mean, don't we on some level have to understand him, at least some rudimentary level, in order to trust him? And then as we walk with him, does he want us to continue in a non-thinking, non-comprehending faith? Or does he want us to grow in our understanding? And, and if we don't understand something, is it because God is unwilling? What did he say to the disciples in Acts 2? I have much to share with you, but you are not ready to bear it. Does that sound like he wants them to understand or doesn't want them to understand? But what was the limitation? His unwillingness to help or their incapacity to comprehend? Their slowness to learn. Their stubbornness. Their unwillingness. Maybe they believed that all they needed was faith and they didn't need to understand. How can he help them learn? And I think you're going to find in our lesson today, as we go through our lesson today, this theme is going to come up again and again. Does God want us to unfold our understanding to learn more? Or does he want us to simply be blind, ignorant slaves? Yes, over here. I like the quote in Proverbs 24, uh, starting with verse 3. By wisdom the house is built, and through understanding it's established. Through knowledge its rooms are filled with rare and beautiful treasures. Did you all hear that? What, what, what house is this talking about? I believe it's our house. I mean the house of God. Of us. Our character. Our- yeah, I think, I think you're exactly right. And the house of God are, is made up of people who, which really talking about the hearts and minds of God's people, are established in understanding and wisdom. What did Jesus say in John 15, 15? I no longer call you servants, rather I call you friends, because servants don't understand their master's business. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is beginning, not the end of wisdom. So, the, I guess the point I'm making is that God wants us, to, as far as we're willing, to understand him. Now, how much space is there between our finiteness and his infiniteness? Okay. Will there ever come a time that we will stop growing in our knowledge and understanding of God? Will that ever come? No. So why do we think and why do we present this idea like, well, we've got the truth. We've arrived. We've got it. You see, when you have the idea we've arrived at the truth, we got it. Is your mind still open to more? No. No, and this is constantly an idea, not just with our church, but throughout religions and Christianity, that we've got the truth. This is it. We've arrived. We finally got it right. And as soon as we do, and one of the things we're going to talk about today is going to challenge some of the traditional things we've been taught in our church because of this attitude. We've arrived. We've got it. But I'm going to suggest truth is unfolding. We will never stop growing in our comprehension. And the healthy attitude is not we know the truth, but we love the truth. And we want to know more today than we knew yesterday, more tomorrow than we know today. That we have a hunger for the truth. And it says in Thessalonians, those that are lost are lost because they did not love the truth. That's the reason they're lost. Second Thessalonians 2.8. They did not love the truth and thus be saved. So we want to be lovers of truth, which grows in our understanding over time. So, if you think about this idea, we're talking about the prophetic gift and our confidence in it. What were all of God's prophets trying to accomplish? What was the, the, the end game for a prophet? Wasn't it to bring people back into a saving relationship with God? To bring people to know God for themselves? Wasn't that their end game? All the prophets' mission was to bring people back to unity with God. Wasn't that the end game? No matter what the message was, its ultimate end game was to stop something of destruction and bring people back to God. 
And then the covenant experience, the new covenant experience in Hebrews and also in Jeremiah, this is a, the covenant I'll make of the house of Israel that time. I will write my law on their hearts and minds. No longer will a man say to his neighbor or his brother, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. See, if we actually experience what the prophets are designed to do for us, bring us back to that union with God, that second covenant experience, that with the laws written on our hearts and minds, we know him, will there be a need for prophets? There won't be a need anymore. No one will have to say to his brother, know the Lord, because we will all know him. This is the goal of what we're trying to accomplish. All right, Sunday's lesson is on biblical authority. Somebody read for us the last paragraph in Sunday's lesson. Today, too, the strength and certainty of what we believe as Seventh-day Adventists must be based on the Word of God alone. Once we are certain of our doctrines from the Bible and work from that firm base, we can truly have confidence in the prophetic gift. What do you think about this idea that our doctrines need to be based on the Word of God, the Bible alone? Are we all in agreement here? Do we have some say, no, we should base our, our doctrines on something other than the Bible alone? We're all in agreement. Okay. With that in mind, are there, are there things in the Bible, are there beliefs, ideas, teachings, doctrines that you've heard that you think don't have Bible support? Because I'd like to explore. If, if you've ever struggled with any, say, I've never really seen a Bible support for this. If you've had that, let's, let's talk about that. Okay. I'm going to assume that no. All right, then let's take the question this way. Are there ideas that have biblical support, but those ideas in our church need further development, further expansion, further maturation, further growth, further, further light to bring them to fruition? For instance, was the teaching in Old Testament times, um, was there a teaching about animal sacrifices that was biblical? And did that teaching need expansion when Christ came to understand that there was a fuller understanding of what animal sacrifices were about fulfilled in Christ? Yes. Do we need, do we have ideas in our church that have a biblical base but need to be expanded to a greater understanding? The investigative judgment. Oh, the investigative judgment. Thank you. That was actually on my list. What about the cleansing of the sanctuary? Is it biblically based? Let's give a couple of Bible texts to make sure we understand the biblical basis for it. 2,300 days in the sanctuary be cleansed, Daniel 8.14. Or Malachi 3, 1 through 3. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way for me. Then, uh, for me. then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant you desire will come. He will come like a refiner's fire, launder of soap. He will refine and purify like silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them as gold. So he comes to this temple to purify. So... As we delve into this, one other question is, through this quarter, as we studied about prophets and prophecies, have we discovered that prophets, true prophets of God, are all-knowing? Or have we discovered that true prophets still have limited knowledge? Do true prophets, when they give a prophecy, have complete understanding, or does their own understanding grow over time? Well, that's important for us to keep in mind too, isn't it? So, for instance, uh, the example of the animal sacrifices, um, the Pharisees, even, even John the Baptist, didn't John the Baptist's understanding of Christ's mission expand? The disciples who were walking with Christ, did their understanding, they saw him as Messiah, but did they need an expansion of their understanding of what he was trying to accomplish? Yeah. So we can have truth, but that truth still needs to unfold and expand with, with time. So with that in mind... 
Um, I'm going to use some writings from one of the founders of our church because we want to look at this process of expanding and developing truth. And if we believe truth unfolds over time, how much new insight, new truth, new revelation has our church had in the last 120 years? Or are we basically teaching stuff that's old? Have we stagnated? Have our minds stopped expanding? Yes. I don't know that teachings of the church have changed. I've been having this for 30 years. I know that the people's love for God to me has changed. I don't, I don't think we live in a way for the cabinet that was here 30 years ago. I mean, no, it's still here. Maybe it's just my view and my experience, but I think as a whole, we're much more in Christ-centered church than we used to be. I appreciate that. And I'm hoping it has to do with maybe some evolution in our understanding of some of these teachings. I'm hoping. And I want to see if we can't push some of that this morning. This is written in Christ Object Lessons in 1900. And I do want you to watch the dates here. Because the dates are going to show a progression in thinking. Because we're going to back up and see one that's written a little earlier. But this is, this is regarding a sanctuary, sanctuary doctrine, the doctrines of our church, written in 1900. This is what it says. The significance of the Jewish economy is not yet fully comprehended. Truths vast and profound are shouted forth in its rites and symbols. The gospel is the key that unlocks its mysteries. Through a knowledge of the plan of redemption, its truths are open to our understanding. Far more than we do, it is our privilege to understand these wonderful themes. Does that sound like in 1900 we should take the position, we've got the truth, we're locked in? Or does it sound like we should remain open for this to evolve, to have different understandings than we currently do? Or at least deeper and broader. And then this was out of Review and Herald, November 23, 1893. The system of Jewish economy was the gospel in figure, a presentation of Christianity which was to be developed as fast as minds of the people could comprehend spiritual light. What is the limiting factor in, in our understanding? Notice that, okay? Is it that, well, God doesn't want us to understand, he just wants us to believe and do it. No, the limiting factor is our slowness to think. God wants to shine light on us as fast as we can understand it. Satan ever seeks to make obscure the truths that are plain, and Christ ever seeks to open the mind to comprehend every essential truth concerning the salvation of fallen man. To this day, there are still aspects of truth which are dimly seen, connections that are not understood, and far-reaching depths in the law of God that are uncomprehended. 1893. Had our, had our investigative judgment doctrine already come into by, by this time? Yes, it was already formulated. We'd already come up with the whole investigative judgment thing, our whole explanation of stuff, already by this time. Yet, we have two passages. We have truths vast and broad we don't understand yet. Many of these things are not connected. We don't really have full comprehension. But we haven't really taken this and said, well, let's dig deeper. Let's really expand it. Let's, let's, it, let's get better comprehension. Let's make more connections of truth here. Yes. I just like to suggest that since 1900, the world has gone through tremendous changes, uh, both political, we've been through many wars, and in the medical field, and in the computer age, a lot of things have changed and opened our understanding uh, in many ways we never expected, and I believe it's going to continue. Oh, I appreciate that. And how would you like to go to a doctor? today who's practicing medicine like they did in 1900. You see, but that's theologically, we're preaching theology that's 120 years old. I mean, you're exactly right. The whole world is evolving in our insight and our understanding, but our spiritual insight has been somewhat stagnant. At least it seems that way to me. 
Am I alone in that thought? No. No, but I think we have an opportunity, we have permission to, to challenge this, to, to dig deeper in the Word and see what is being taught. So I'm going to read you now a quote that comes, it's the earliest quote that I'm going to read to you from all the quotes of this, this particular founder of our church, and it, it predates the ones I've already read to you. This one is actually in 1890, it comes out of the book Patriarchs and Prophets. And I want you to listen to this. The most important part of the daily ministration was the service performed in behalf of individuals. The repentant sinner brought his offering to the door of the tabernacle and placing his hands upon the victim's head, confessed his sins, thus in figure, transferring them from himself to the innocent sacrifice. By his own hand, the animal was then slain and the blood was carried by the priest into the holy place and sprinkled before the veil behind which the ark containing the law that the sinner had transgressed. By this ceremony, the sin was through the blood transferred in figure to the sanctuary. In some cases, the blood was not taken into the holy place, but the flesh was then to be eaten by the priest as Moses directed the sons of Aaron. Both ceremonies alike symbolized the transfer of the sin from the penitent to the sanctuary. Such was the work that went on day by day throughout the year. The sins of Israel thus being transferred to the sanctuary, the holy places were defiled. And a special work became necessary to remove the sins. And God commanded that an atonement be made for each of the sacrificial apartments. Now, that was written as the earliest statement that we're going to read today. Can someone find me, because remember, our quarterly said, and we agreed, that today, too, the strength and certainty of what we believe as Seventh-day Adventists must be based on the Word of God alone. We've already agreed that our basis should be in the Word of God alone. Can somebody show me from the Word of God anywhere where the blood of the sacrificial animal ever defiled or ever contaminated? I challenge you. It made it holy. It's everything the blood or the meat of the sacrificial animal ever touched became holy. In the word. Do we want to base our beliefs on the word of God alone or not? And if you can find it, show me. I've made this challenge before. No one's ever been able to find a scripture verse that says the blood of the sacrificial animal contaminates or defiles. Now think through the meaning here. Think through the meaning with me. What does the sacrificial animal represent? Jesus Christ. What does the blood of the sacrificial animal represent? Life, his character. The life and character of? Of Jesus. Are we comfortable then saying that when Jesus came into contact with confessed sins, i.e., when he became our substitute and surety, that his blood is not what cleanses, but what contaminates the sinner. When Christ confronted sin, took our position, became sin though he knew no sin, did Christ become defiled, or did Christ win, overcome, and vanquish sin? He defeated it. When Jesus said, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. John 6, 53-56. Do you think he's making the, the metaphorical connection between the Old Testament sacrificial animal and himself as the fulfillment? Yes. And he's not talking cannibalism here, is he? No. Should we then take that what Jesus was telling them, that up until 1844, whoever accepted Jesus was defiled in their spirit temple because the sins of the, the blood taking into the sanctuary defiles. So if we take in the blood of Christ, we're defiled? 
No. Uh, until 1844, that is. No. Are we comfortable with this idea of the blood of Christ defiling? Or do we need to expand our thinking on this thing? I think it's very quiet in here because what you're proposing is very diametrically opposed to the way that I've been thinking. I'm not opposed to rethinking. I think that you have the, the privilege of examining what you believe probably very in depth. I think I know what I believe. Um, I don't think that the blood defiles, but when 2,300 days essentially shall be cleansed, why is there something needs to be cleansed if there's nothing, I don't want to say dirty, God forbid, but whatever that might be, when there's a lot of blood spurting all over the place, something needs to be done. I would imagine it might have an odor. I might imagine. And I know we're, we're going between metaphorically speaking and logically speaking, but I think you can hear a pin drop in here because I hope that people are questioning what you're saying. I, I hope we're not just got hooks in our mouth and miss the blind leading the blind. I hope they're questioning too because... Um, as I've said in here, I didn't say it today, but I'll say it again, that I've said many times, I'm not here to tell anybody what to think. I'm here to get you to think. And everybody must be fully persuaded in their own mind, it says in Romans 14.5. So yeah, don't, don't believe anything because I say it, I'm just a human. But you have your own individuality, your own ability to think and reason, so weigh it out for yourself. But, but I think it's, it's legitimate for us to in open honesty to ask these questions. And so, the question then, we've, we've identified the symbol, and see... Do you think it's time for us to move from symbols to reality? And so the symbol of the lamb represents the reality of Jesus. The symbol of the blood represents the reality of his life. The life is in the blood. His perfect, righteous life. What does the symbol of the sanctuary represent? Us. The temple. God's temple. You remember in the Malachi text, which the same founder of our church said is, is speaking of the exact same event as Daniel 8.14. 2,300 days in the sanctuary will be cleansed. In the Malachi 3.1-3 through 3 text, the Lord you're seeking will come to his temple as a refiner's fire, a launderer's soap. That's a cleansing thing. And it says in the text, he refines and cleanses the Levites. It makes them clean. He's cleaning the spirit temple. Um, so what does the sanctuary represent? Keep that in mind as we go through. What do the symbols mean? Can we move from symbols to reality? We have this idea that, that blood contaminates. I'm going to suggest it cleanses, it heals, it restores. The symbol meaning we take in Christ. Um, I want to show you some progression in thought of the one who wrote that earlier statement. That was written in 1890. Here's something that was written in 1898 in The Desire of Ages. Christ did not soften down his symbolic representation. He reiterated the truth in yet stronger language. Verily I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of Man, you have no life in you. And quotes that exact same passage I just read. To eat the flesh and drink the blood of, of Christ is to receive him as personal Savior, believing that he forgives our sins and that we are complete in him. It is by beholding his love, by dwelling upon it, by drinking it in, that we, are part, that we are to become partakers of his nature. So where is the blood being applied here? What food is to the body, Christ must be to the soul. 
Food cannot benefit us unless we eat it, unless it becomes part of our being. So Christ is of no value to us if we do not know him as our personal Savior. A theoretical knowledge will do us no good. We must feed upon him, receive him into the heart, so that his life becomes ours. His love, his grace must be assimilated. This is page 389 of Desire of Ages. Now, the Old Testament system, the blood of the sacrificial animal was taken and ministered throughout the system. Jesus himself said that the blood, his blood and flesh, is to be taken inside us, inside the spirit temple. So there is a connection giving us some insight, one connection, that the Old Testament sanctuary was a symbol of the spirit temple. But there's more than that. Do we have texts that overtly say, don't you know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit dwells in you? Did Christ say, you will destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up? Don't you know that you are living stones built into a temple for God? I mean, we have lots of places all through. What is the, uh, the, the foundation built upon? As Christ, the chief cornerstone and the apostles, We are all built together in a house for the Lord. Don't you know that you're a spiritual house where the Lord dwells by His Spirit? Do we see that or do we remain stuck in symbols, refusing to expand our understanding of what Christ is trying to do? So cleansing of the sanctuary. What's happening in the cleansing? Well, what was it that was defiled? The hearts, and hearts and minds. The spirit temple was defiled by what? Lies. Lies, Lies, rebelliousness, sinfulness, wickedness, whatever you want to call it. Our characters are warped. We need cleansing, don't we? So we'll come back and answer the question, why 2,300 years? Why 2,300 years till that happens? Symbol, symbol only becomes reality when it changes us. The symbols become a reality when it changes us, he said. That's great. This is out of Education, page 36, written in 1903. Again, we've already said that the spiritual people have a progression in their thinking. That earlier one was written in 1890. This is 13 years later. Through Christ was to be fulfilled the purpose of which the tabernacle was a symbol. That glorious building, its walls of glistening gold, reflecting in rainbow hues, the curtains inwrought with the cherubim, the fragrance of ever-burning incense pervading all, the priests robed in spotless white, and... In the deep mystery of the inner place, above the mercy seat, between the figures of the bowed worshiping angels, the glory of the holiest. In all, God desired his people to read his purpose for the human soul. It was the same purpose long afterwards set forth by the Apostle Paul, speaking by the Holy Spirit. Know ye not that ye are a temple of God, and the Spirit of God dwells in you. 1 Corinthians 3.16 Are we seeing, does the blood of Christ, when you accept Jesus and take him in, does your temple become contaminated and defiled? No. Are we comfortable with this idea of the blood of Christ defiling the sanctuary? It sounds like it's saying the sins and not the blood are defiling the sanctuary, not the blood. And what is it that's transferring the sins? What is it that carries the sins into the sanctuary? the blood or the meat of the animal. So as we eat the flesh and drink the blood of Jesus, are we transferring sins into our hearts? Yes? Could that mean rather than transferring the sins, it's bringing them out into light? Ah. 
See, if we understand the sanctuary is the heart, the mind, the spirit temple, and the blood of Christ is his perfect righteous life that he wrought out for us, then do we see the transferring of the blood or eating of the flesh is not transferring sin, but it's transferring righteousness. It's transferring Christ-like character into the believer. It's healing and transforming us. And it's not covering up sin. No. It's, it's eradicating it. So maybe we should decode a couple more of the symbols of the Old Testament sacrificial service. What are the, who's the high priest? Who does that represent? Christ. Christ. And, and if, just to, really quick, if you remember, only the high priest would go into peace to God face to face, and only then once a year. But after Aaron was initiated as high priest, Moses used to go in and speak to God face to face all the time. But he's not the high priest. Aaron is. But only the high priest can do it. So what's the deal? Symbolically, Moses represents Christ before his incarnation, who used to go into God and talk about the plan of salvation and its initiation. They planned it together. So Moses is going in, talking about the whole thing, representing Christ before incarnation. The Lamb represents Christ during his incarnation. And Aaron represents Christ after his ascension as our high priest. Do you see that? So Christ is represented in, in all three. What does the daily priest represent then? If Christ represents, is represented by the high priest, the daily priest is represented by, or represents what? In their white robes. The, the, the redeemed, the right. The priesthood of believers. Paul, uh, Peter makes this very clear. That, don't you know that you are a priesthood of believers? And the white robes represent the character of Christ that the saved have partaken of. So their hearts have been changed. It's no longer I that live, but... Christ lives in me. We have a new heart and a right spirit. We're righteous. We're purified in heart. So the white robes represent those that are ministering the gospel. Then what about the vessels? Remember when they would catch the blood and carry it into vessels? What do the vessels represent? Believers as well. Paul is a chosen vessel unto me to take the gospel. We are to carry in our hearts and minds and lives, we are to carry the good news, the life and righteousness of Christ to others, to share it with others. So we carry that from place to place. And the daily priest would take after the animal sacrifice the blood and carry it through the system, ministering it. Can I throw something in here? As long as it's not a grenade, go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Nowhere in Exodus or Leviticus have I read specifically that sin was transferred to the blood of the animal, nor that the person had to confess their sin on the head of the animal with their hands. So where do we get this? The piece of the doctrine that says that Elamite picked up as being transferred into the blood. Yeah, I've never read that in Scripture that sin was transferred or the blood contaminates. Have you ever read that sin was transferred to the animal? Oh, that's a different question. We're going to come to the... See, there are daily sacrifices we're talking about right now. Later we have the scapegoats only associated with one sacrifice, right? Which was the Day of Atonement sacrifice. And that's a different ceremony. We're going to come to those in a moment. Because the, thing, the, the system was teaching a couple of different things simultaneously. It was a little theater acting out, as we already read, the plan of salvation. And one of the keys that we already read, what is the key to understanding the system? We read it, and maybe it went by too fast, but the gospel is the key that unlocks the mysteries of the Old Testament system. And so the living word becomes the the key that helps us understand the written word. Jesus becomes the lens that we should be looking to first to understand the meaning of what was being described in those old systems, rather than taking the old symbols and forcing Jesus to be pigeonholed into what we think it means. 
And that's traditionally what we do. We take and we figure out, based on the Old Testament alone, what we think all these symbols mean, and then we take Jesus and pigeonhole him into that to make him fit. Rather than taking Jesus and understanding what he revealed to us, and allowing that then to be how we understand the meaning of the Old Testament. Yes? Yeah. One of the fascinating things about Christianity is that all these symbols can be taken in such vastly different ways. You could walk into a church tomorrow and hear some of the same words spoken, and it would mean exactly the opposite of what we are trying to get right now. That's why every person must be fully persuaded in their own mind. I want to just add that what I really appreciate about this class is that we really sort through those uh, either, either misconceptions or those cloudy areas, those... those uh, dark areas of symbolic church speak. And one of the most notable things that you have brought out in, in class in the past is that, you know, the symbol of the blood of Christ covering you is, is one that you really have to, have to grapple with and, and come to terms with because if you think that your sins killed Christ, therefore you are covered with his blood, you have his blood on your hands, and then you can go into God and be more acceptable to God just because you're covered with his dead son's blood without repentance from those sins that killed him, you have something else coming. Mm -hmm. So we're seeking to further understand these symbols, and I appreciate those comments because we, we, we don't want to just be stuck in symbols that make up kind of twisted theology. And so we're also looking to the prophetic and theological growth in a person's life over time. So here's another statement out of Christ Object Lessons, page 102, written in 1900, talking about maybe what this, this, this blood symbolizes. It says, The leaven of truth works a change in the whole man, making the coarse refined, the rough gentle, and the selfish generous. By it, the truth, the impure are cleansed, washed in the blood of the Lamb. So the blood represents his life, which is, of course, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So the truth about God, the truth is also symbolized in the blood that we take in. That you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Okay. So partaking of truth is part of the process of taking of blood, at least according here, which is different than truth doesn't defile, does it? When you take in truth, you become more darkened and defiled? Something's, something has grown, I think. And then in 1897, out of Special Testimonies and Education, page 220, it says, In the study of the Bible, the converted soul eats the flesh and drinks the blood of the Son of God, which he himself interprets as the receiving and doing of his word that are spirit and life. So again, partaking of the word is part of eating the flesh and drinking the blood. And that makes sense because the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, right? And so the written word is the written word of God's divine character revealed to us, ultimately revealed in the living word that came and dwelt among us. So as we read the Bible and partake it into our hearts, we're partaking of Christ, if we have our minds open to the Spirit. And then what about that pattern shown to Moses on the mount? We, we definitely want to deal with that, don't we? This was Special Testimonies Education, 1897. It says the following. When Moses was about to erect the sanctuary in the wilderness, he was cautioned, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mount. Hebrews 8.5. In his law, God has given us the pattern. Our character building is to be after the pattern shown thee on the mount. The law is the great standard of righteousness. It represents the character of God. 
So what was the pattern shown him on the mount? A building or a pattern of love, the character of love? The great law of love was the pattern. And the building to be built is the spirit temple constructed as Christ, the chief cornerstone. Cleansed by his perfect righteousness that he achieved and we partake of freely. Well, a lot of silence. Do we have room for expanding our thinking? Hmm. premise you came out with on first was that there are many things that you cannot hear because you can't hear them, you can't understand them yet. I would think for every one of us, uh, when we have an aha that's brought about probably individually um, by a paradigm shift in the way in which we view something before, we no longer view it that way. I don't I I wonder if the validity of saying that it has to be 180 degrees about face, or can it just be a different direction? In other words, when you hear new truth, is it going to disagree with the way that you believed your whole life, or is it going to go, oh, I see, I get it? Well, it can be multiple different ways, can it? I remember Christ is our mediator. How many agree Christ is our mediator? I agree. It's taught one way. He mediates his blood to the Father on our behalf, pleading to his Father mercy and grace from the Father because he paid the price on our behalf. Now, I still agree Christ is our mediator, but I think there's 180 degrees backwards here. Christ does not mediate from us to the Father to get the Father to be gracious. He is the Father's mediator to mankind. He is the Father's envoy. Through Christ, we see and meet the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And he is pleading in heaven through his Holy Spirit to the sinners to be reconciled to him. And so he's the mediator, he's the go-between, but he's the, the bridge builder, the one who reaches out from God to reach his creation and bring him back to God. I think, I think you're, you're getting to the crux of the matter. That's why they crucified Jesus, because he had a new way of showing these very religious people who God was, and, and it was diametrically opposed to what they, quote-unquote, had to do, all the Lord, the Lord said we will do. That's why they crucified him, because they just waited just a minute here. And, and, I, and I'm not opposed to thinking new. I just would think that the foundation that are there... Either it's concrete or it's rock or something. So the cleansing of the sanctuary, is it the cleansing of hearts and minds of God's people through the grace of Christ, which he's achieved, developing Christ-like character? Is that the cleansing of the sanctuary? That's what it should be. That's not what we've been taught, but that's what it should be. Yeah, I would say, so what have we been teaching for 150 years? Uh, maybe, uh, have we been wondering why the delay? Get this, get this out of uh, Christ Object Lessons 415, again, written in 1900. It is the darkness of misapprehension of God that is enshrouding the world. Men are losing their knowledge of his character. It has been misunderstood and misinterpreted. At this time, a message from God is to be proclaimed, a message illuminating in its influence and saving its power. His character is to be made known. Into the darkness of the world is to be shed the light of his glory, the light of his goodness, mercy, and truth. The last rays of merciful light, the last message of mercy to be given to the world, is a revelation of his character of love. The children of God are to manifest his glory in their own life and character. They are to reveal what the grace of God has done for them. Is that the message we've been... What did Christ say? When this gospel of the kingdom shall be taken as a witness to all the world, then the end will come. Have we taken a gospel of the love of God to the world? 
Or have we taken a pagan system of appeasement to the world? An angry, wrathful God who must be bought off by the blood of his son in order to not lash out. And if you claim that blood, you have legal pardon against your name. And then you have Jesus in heaven using his blood, his magic eraser ink, to erase the records of any wrongdoing. Well, how can we take it to the world we haven't even taken to the church? <laughs> I mean, you know, when you think our whole life, what we've been taught in the church, what I don't understand is since the church has been such a staunch believer in Algie White, it's been right up there at top. You have to believe her. But we we build, spend so much time on, you know, whether or not to drink coffee or tea or go to movies or where you're But the important things they've completely missed. They brought us all these other things, but they've not presented something like this that is so important to our salvation, to our life, to our understanding of God's character. How have we missed it so far? I think that we, you know, when I hear her talk, she said they have not brought. We are supposed to bring, we are supposed to study individually, and I think this is the mistake we have made as a church. Some people came to Sister White years ago, and Willie White, and they said, what should we do on this issue? What should we do on that issue? And she said, I am not your conscience. Go to Jesus Christ. He will direct you just like he directs me, not in visions. That's where I think we have failed, uh, Doctor, is that we're looking for you, we're looking for the leaders to tell us the way out. Right. I like that. But now, wait a minute. When we send our kids to the Adventist schools from the seven years old on, and the teachers are teaching, I mean, I know as adults are responsible for reading and understanding ourselves. So I don't expect you to save me. But when we send our kids for Christian education, and they come out after 12 years of school and have never heard anything like this, there's something wrong with that picture. Maybe you re- need to reconsider where you send them. Well, last week, last week we talked about something that is a contributing factor to that process. We talked about getting away from certain examples of the Bible that could bless our church. And you notice that the, the church was founded with leadership being all theologically trained people, right? No, the leadership were not theologically trained people except Paul. The rest of them were just normal people who knew Christ. And then the foundation of our church, the founders of our church, they were all theologically trained people, right? No, our church has evolved to only theologians who have graduated from our inbred seminaries can actually be in leadership of this organization. And then what happens is we get this self-perpetuating, everybody feeding back their same info to themselves that they're all been taught the same, and it closes the avenue of the Holy Spirit's ability to bring a wide variety of perspective to leadership of our organization. And I think our organization could benefit by stepping back and opening the doors of leadership to anybody who has demonstrated Christ-like character and working in their life. It's what the, what the biblical counsels are. And so I think that goes to the reason why we have difficulty in the education, because there, it's all self-taught, repeated, internal. We have one seminary in our, in our North American division, and they're all taught the same thing from the same people, and they go out and teach everybody the same thing. Yes, hands all over the place, yes. Don't disagree with what you're saying. Uh, and that doesn't mean seminary training is bad. It just means we need a balance of lots of perspectives. Okay, go ahead. You can mention, I'm not going to crucify you from one statement. Maybe you said something about the Holy Spirit. Yes. And there's no way any Adventist theologian way of doing things can stop the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is smarter than that. The Holy Spirit is more powerful than that. And in spite of all what we've done wrong, I know that the Holy Spirit in an instant can use even the foolishness of Adventism to have the people just go, wait a minute, I mean, look at our look at our silly country. What what Where we are right now, we've allowed it from the frog in the pan mentality 
for you know 50, 60 years from what our country used to be to what it is now. When did the frogs jump out of the pan? When did the Adventists jump out, not of the church, but of the foolishness that, well, why does that happen? Why, this lady on the other side of the room, I can understand her frustration. Okay, but when does that change us enough to just be able to be on our own mind and of the spirit of Christ and say, wait just a minute. And we don't have to revolutionize and say, let's tear down the GC. Well, why don't we just be Christ-like and, and be loving and be worthy if that might be the do you think, leadership? Do you think it would require for us to think for ourselves? Okay. Resist things coming from on high that tell you to not think. Resist things that tell you just believe without evidence. Resist things that say you don't need to understand and you don't need to ask questions. You need to just have faith. Resist that. See, in this war between Christ and Satan, how much truth is on Christ's side? How much is on Satan's side? So if you're Satan, do you want people investigating, thinking, looking for evidence and truth? Do you want people just believing? Okay, so these ideas, just believe, just have faith, are designed to shut down the pursuit of truth that keeps people in darkness. Stanley? You know, I think this is the place that we are now, you know, group thinking, I think, comes from this, the power that, that we put into the authority of other people. And, and for the time I was a child, I had heard the truth, that we are the only church that has the truth. And if we have the truth, we don't have to explore any further. There's no incentive. That's right. So we have And that's what I'm challenging today. Grow in truth rather than arrive at truth. Yeah, thank you. Um, do you see a progression in Ellen's understanding Absolutely. as I read these things over time? Did you see a progression? Do we recognize that or we take a statement and just lock into it that that's the deal? Yes. I don't know if this is a more charitable explanation or not for the position that we're in and that we're sort of decrying right now in this class. But there was a huge effort in the 1950s and 60s to synchronize or synthesize or whatever you want to call it our use of the symbolic language of Christianity with that of the evangelical world. And we have tried very hard to come into harmony with our brothers and sisters of Christ in other denominations, when in fact, probably what we needed to do was be a little more courageous and a little more confrontational with the truth in love as we're coming to it here in this class. Well, let's press on with some more things. I want to do some more symbols because the, the Day of Atonement, 2,300 days, there are at least minimum, there were more than this, but two different major lessons being taught in the Old Testament sanctuary service. One was the healing of the individual. The individual salvation was being taught. But there was also the progression, God's plan for eradicating sin in, in the history of the earth. The history of the earth was taught. And the yearly sacrifices, the yearly calendar, was a calendar that represented the history of the earth. That's what it represented. And so when man fell into sin, what's the first feast that, that was of, of the yearly calendar? First feast? Passover. God passed over. It says in Hebrews, uh, excuse me, Romans 3.25, God left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He overpassed. He passed over. The first feast, Passover. That's where we started. God's grace passing over our sin. And then instantly behind that is the unleavened bread, which happens at the same weekend. This is the feast of unleavened bread. Unleavened meaning there's no leaven, there's no sin. This is the bread represents Christ, which is broken. 
his body broken, destroying the sin's hold on us that we eat and partake of right there that first week. God partake, and of course that was fulfilled 2,000 years ago when Christ came, and ultimately the Passover lamb representing Christ who won the victory for us, and then the unleavened bread, oh, and then the wave sheaf, the same weekend. The wave sheaf represents Christ's resurrection. So we have Passover, he left his sins committed beforehand unpunished, we have Christ coming being broken, sinless for us that we partake of, and we have Christ rising again victoriously, all in that first thing. This is where it starts. And then after that, 50 days later, came the Feast of Weeks, also known as Harvest, also known as Pentecost, which is the outgoing of the message, the good news. The victory of Christ is now being shared, and we start the recruitment process, the recruitments into the real kingdom of God made possible through Christ. And then after that, down the road, there's a long period of time, just looking over the, over the trumpets, the Feast of Trumpets. This was the loud cry announcing that Christ is coming. We're preparing to meet him. The Day of Atonement is coming, and the Day of Atonement is the day of at one mint, the day of being one with God, the day of reconciliation, the day of unification, the day of, of restoration of our, our hearts sealing back into that, that, that unity with God, the last day generation who have understood the truths about God have had the lies of Satan purged, removed, they've recovered their judgment, and they discern rightly, and the power of that system is broken in their mind, and they're reconciled to God. And then the last one is the Feast of Tabernacles, which is the second coming, and we tabernacle forever with God. So this is teaching this progression every year. This is what's going to happen. I'm passing over your sins. I'm leaving the sins committed beforehand unpunished. There's a Savior coming. He's going to, he's going to destroy the power of sin. You're going to partake of him. Uh, he's going to rise again. You're going to spread this message to everybody. There's going to be an announcement before the end to prepare to meet your Savior. There's going to be a reconciliation of the last day people, and then I'm going to come and get you, and we're going to spend eternity with you. This is what's being taught in the, in the annual feast. And what happened is we, we mixed the daily healing of the individual with the annual. And so we have this daily taking the sins into the sanctuary, now needing to be cleansed on the annual feast. There were people who achieved that cleansing before 1844. I refer you to Enoch. I refer you to Elijah. Uh, there, there were people who achieved that, that cleansing of heart and mind and unity with God before 1844. But, this is talking about the progression of the world now, the global, the corporate, in the, in the annual feast. In the last few minutes, let's try to decipher some, some difficult language written again in 1890, the early stuff with the hard language. I'm going to read you a passage, and let's try and, and, and rephrase it with, with decoding the symbols, replacing what the symbols mean uh, with, with the reality. Here's a, here's a difficult one. The incense is out of Faith I Live By 197, written in 1890. This incense, ascending with the prayers of Israel, represents the merits and intercession of Christ, his perfect righteousness, which through faith is imputed to his people, and which alone can make the worship of sinful beings acceptable to God. Before the veil of the most holy place was an altar of perpetual intercession before the holy, an altar of continual atonement. By blood and incense, God was to be approached, symbols pointing to the great mediator through whom sinners may approach Jehovah, and through whom alone mercy and salvation be granted to repentant believing souls. Does that just enlighten your mind? <laughs> I'm not criticizing it. There's nothing wrong with this speech. But it's symbolic. Remember he said to Moses, you know, uh, to, to prophets I speak in symbols and dreams and dark language and metaphors and parables, but to you I speak face to face as a man speaks to a friend. So there's nothing wrong with the language, but it has to be understood because it's symbolic language. It's not reality until it's understood in the reality. So here's maybe a way to interpret it. The sweetness, the incense, the sweetness in the prayers of God's children represent the lovely traits of Christ-like character established in the hearts 
through Christ's work in the believer. His perfect righteousness, which through trust is established in his people, and which alone can make the worship of sinful beings acceptable to God. Because of the lies of Satan that separate us from God, Christ is perpetually interceding in our minds to establish his character. But in order for Christ to cleanse our hearts, we must keep the heart continually open to him. By truth and by loveliness of Christ-like character, God was to be approached. Symbols pointing to the great ambassador revealing God to man, through whom sinners may come to know Jehovah, and through whom alone mercy and healing can be granted to the repentant, believing soul. Is that easier to understand? Okay, I'll do one more. It says, in the offering, this is out of Faith of Live by, uh, same page, 197. Next paragraph, really. In the offering of incense, the priest was brought more directly into the presence of God than in any other act of the daily ministration. As the inner veil of the sanctuary did not extend to the top of the building, the glory of God, which was manifested above the mercy seat, was partially visible from the first apartment. When the priest offered incense before the Lord, he looked toward the ark. And as the cloud of incense arose, the divine glory descended upon the mercy seat and filled the most holy place, and often so filled both apartments that the priest was obliged to retire to the door of the tabernacle. Potential interpretation of the symbols. In the offering of prayers filled with the sweetness of Christ-like character, the believer is brought more directly into the presence of God than in any other act of the daily healing therapy. As the lies Satan told about God, which infected our minds, did not completely eclipse the truth from reaching us, the character of God, which was manifested through Christ, was partially visible to the converted mind. When the believer prays sweetly before the Lord, he he keeps in mind God's methods, principles, and law of love and liberty. And as the prayers arise, the divine character is magnified by Christ and fills the mind of the believer, and often is so overwhelming that the believer is left without words. Have you had those experiences in your worship and conversations with God? That you felt the divine presence, your mind became enlightened, and you were awestruck with how beautiful God is. That's what this is talking about. I've been trying to find among intellectual people what symbolism can explain the mystery of godliness. God used symbolism back there to ancient Israel. It's coming out of hedonism to bring them in. He used, when Christ came, Christ said, I've come to show, us, show you the Father. He was trying to show the mystery of godliness. And so we've progressed on. But there are still people. I worked among heathen cannibals many years. And with those ancient symbols that God taught to Israel that changed their lives, they couldn't understand any of the higher theological reason that many of us use today. What I'm saying is a place, part of place for all of it. The symbolism. Yep. We can't throw Does everybody hear what he said? Really, he's worked with people, cannibals, and darkness societies. He said it was those symbols, these, these dark symbols and dark language, actually, that reached and helped them. I think that's really a beautiful thing. As I said, there's nothing wrong with the symbols. It's not bad speech. But does God want us to, to stay there? Does he want us to progress? When he said to his disciples, I have much that, that I'd like to share with you, but you can't bear it. Doesn't he want us to come past the symbols if we're capable? What I'm, what I'm saying is, what modern symbolism you could say to explain the mystery of godliness without even reaching back into those things. Yeah. I think you've got to reach out so that the modern intellectual can understand where God wants us to come and reach out to it. 
All right, in closing, last, last thing I want you to read. This is, out of, this is from 1892, Councils to, to Writers and Editors, 1892. For those who think that, that we've arrived at the truth and we don't have more growth to do, listen to this. There is no excuse for anyone in taking the position that there is no more truth to be revealed and that all of our expositions of Scripture are without an error. The fact that certain doctrines have been held as truth for many years by our people is not proof that our ideas are infallible. Age will not make error into truth, and truth can afford to be fair. No doctrine will lose anything by close investigation. See, I love that attitude. How open. See, this is the attitude I, 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 I recommend to you. I'm not telling you what to believe, but I recommend this attitude of openness to truth. Whatever we believe, let's, let's let the truth, let's let the light shine, and let's investigate, let's search, because we lose nothing by coming to truth. We lose when we arrive at the truth, close the mind, and say, this is it, there's no more to be learned. That's when we lose. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have never stopped pouring out your spirit, your spirit of love and your spirit of truth to lead us into all truth. We have sometimes been like those disciples, not ready to hear and not ready to learn. But, but this class, Lord, I, I lift them to you and ask that you will, will pour your spirit out and lighten their minds. They, they want to know truth. They want to know you and, and help the, the old ways of thinking that need to be let go uh, let them be put by the side and let us come to see you in ever clearer light that we can tell others about you. In your holy name, amen. amen.